design is collaborative and that, you know, very often I'll start with a thumbnail that's an idea and they might begin to work up the way they see it is better than what I drew. So then I'll change course and say, hey, then it could be this. And that, you know, that's what the process is. And I think that's that's a good energy. And it's also wonderful to learn from your partners, to compete with them and to to try to stay young. And I think I benefited from that for years. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. My guest today is a true American original, a trailblazer, glass ceiling shatterer, artist, educator, consummate New Yorker, and above all, a graphic design powerhouse, Paula Scher. Her work has advanced the discipline to new heights and in unexpected ways. Throughout her 50-year career, not only has she created some of the most memorable and groundbreaking designs and identities, but she's enhanced the professional lives of her compatriots at the famed design studio Pentagram as a partner. She's even found time to carve out her own personal fine art career of fascinating hand-painted maps that echo her own father's incredible career. More on that later. Paula got her start briefly at Random House Books before working at CBS Records, followed by Atlantic Records, and during her time in music, she created literally hundreds of album covers, including the now-iconic debut for the rock band Boston, with its neon-looking spaceships propelled by blue flames. After opening her own studio in the 80s with Terry Koppel, she joined the famed and overwhelmingly male British design firm Pentagram in the early 90s. She helped launch the New York Outpost, and thanks to her talents, along with other greats like Michael Beirut, and thanks to its unique management ethos, its fame and influence continue to rise. The incredible firm has recently celebrated its 50th anniversary. During Paula's time at Pentagram, she's produced incredibly influential works, none probably more than the identity and posters for the public theater in New York. Paula's 1995 type-heavy poster for the public's production of Savian Glover's Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk was a masterstroke. It was powerful, memorable, and above all, it was cool. And as someone who moved to New York in the late 90s, it's hard to overestimate the project's impact on the cultural fabric of the city and the evolution of design. It perfectly captured the mood of the age. I caught up with Paula from Pentagram's office to talk about how she collaborated with some of the biggest bands on the planet, what makes Pentagram so special, her first hand-drawn map, how her husband, famed illustrator and designer Seymour Quast, taught Paula about typography, and just what good graphic design even is. And I, I kind of wanted to start a little bit at the beginning, because obviously we have a lot of uh, a lot of territory to cover. Um, and and your, your father was a, an engineer who worked on uh, like technology and, and maps and uh, like it's kind of an engineer, right? Right. He was a photogrammetric engineer oh, okay. and uh, a scientist and an inventor. I see. And he were, he was coordinator of nations mapping. He worked for the government. I see. What, was there any kind of uh, big maps that he has he had worked on, or that like? Well, it's more than that. He was um, a, a uh, what's known as a photogrammetric engineer, and he, it, as a young man, was working on the Tennessee Valley Authority, and they were damming the Tennessee River for electricity. This is sort of at the end of the Depression. He said that he was dynamiting in areas following a map that was given to him, and all the positions for the dynamite were wrong. And they were all wrong by the same amount in in every area he was dynamiting. So he realized there had to be something wrong with photography that he was operating from. It was aerial photography. And he realized that the camera um, was, the lens of the camera was not compensating for the curvature of the earth uh, as it got higher or lower. And that was what was causing the distortion. So he worked out a mathematical formula to correct lens distortion in aerial photography. Uh, Without his invention, there would be no Google Maps. Oh, gosh. Wow. Well, thank you to your dad. That sounds <laughs> that's a, quite the contribution. Yeah, he got his he got a 15. He got a fifteen hundred dollar check for the government. I have a, <laughs> a photo of it and he was promoted. Oh, wow. But uh, but those those were the days when civil service was a different place. Absolutely. Um, and growing up, was it the kind of household where, you know, that sort of 
post-war kind of age of, of people kind of enjoying home photography and, you know, the eventual emergence of like the Polaroid, the early Polaroids and things like that. Was yours a household that was like creative in that way? Like people making films and... Well, my father was, uh, he, he always took photos. Um, and uh, mostly when I was in high school, the, my parents took a lot of European trips and my father used to brag that his photos would be perfect for postcards and travel ads and he would photograph my mother in every shot to prove that it was a real personal photo not a not a commercial company doing it he he was he was very egotistical that way and um i i read that you you originally studied um illustration before kind of moving on from there um was your were your parents sort of like supportive of that no no, my father thought art was dumb. <laughs> I was, I was. I mean, especially if he's, you know, if they're the the type that traveled to Europe, where they, uh, they must have had some sort of appreciation for art, or I guess maybe just not for their own daughter, maybe. Well, they thought my father thought serious people became, uh, you know, scientists, not artists. Was there a particular science that he was trying to sh- push you into at the time? Well, I was terrible at math, and so I, I, I think he perceived me as a huge failure. And uh, what, what drew you to illustration? Well, you know, when I when I went to Tyler, I knew I wanted to be an artist of some sort. I didn't know what sort, um, and I tried everything. It was a it was really a terrific school that way. In your first two years, you experimented with all kinds of things, and there was drawing, and there was painting, and there was. Uh, something called basic design that I was terrible about with because it seemed about being about being neat, that the goal of the design was to do something that was very organized and neat, and I was sloppy. And then in my junior year, I took something called graphic design, and that was totally different. That was about ideas, and that that's when I got hooked. And when you uh, first started working in design uh, in the 70s, and obviously you're someone who's work is so synonymous with New York and that kind of the the identity of New York and the feel of New York and the emotions that are connected to New York. Um, you know, the 70s were a kind of a, a dark time for, for the city and a very gritty time. I'm curious, like when you as a young designer, what was that like working, you know, as a graphic designer in a, a town at the time that was known for being gritty and dangerous and just very different from what it is today? Well, it was much better, I think. I, I like the grit and I like the danger. It was very exciting for a young person. And I think that uh, there are a lot of people I know from the 70s have a huge amount of nostalgia for things like the kind of club life there was and the, the sort of uh, notion that it was a uh, – you could you could you could create your own social orbit and you could find your own milieu and the sort of people you wanted to know. And I was in the music industry and it was incredible. I started working at CBS Records in 1972, first in the advertising department. Uh, I was hired by Atlantic because an ad I worked on there, and in Atlantic they did record covers and ads in the same department. So I started designing record covers when I was about uh, 24, and um, by the time I was uh, working there a year and a half. It was uh, 1974, and I had designed 25 record covers, and they won awards. And so I was hired back to CBS, where I worked for the rest of the 70s into the early 80s. And I was East Coast art director, and I made about 150 covers a year or oversaw them, depending upon how they came in. Uh, I didn't even know I had an unusual job. I thought in, I thought in everything in New York was possible. And I mean, 150 covers a year sounds, you know, really high. Is that was that like abnormally? Do you remember it being like a, a, quite the factory to be able to to do that amount of work at the time? Well, I had uh, roughly three covers a week that I was working on simultaneously. Some of them um, I designed, meaning that I actually made the covers. Some of them I art directed, meaning that I set up photo sessions and uh, hired illustrators and put the type on covers. Some of them were covers that came in from Nashville that had to be sort of re-mechanicalized for some purpose in New York. There was just a mix of things that I did, and it, it was it was active all the time um, and uh, very very creative. Though I didn't I didn't know I had a very special job. Years later, and remember, all this was before there were computers, so we were actually making stuff. You know that you would you would blow up things and paste them onto 
record covers and they would be C prints, this kind of photography that you used for comping. And I would hand paint the top on a piece of prepared acetate on, to show the recording artist who all had contractual cover approval. They were my clients essentially. And they came in and they had their opinions and you redid things. And uh, sometimes they hated it. Sometimes they liked it. Sometimes they didn't have any say at all because they were dropped from the label. It could be all sorts of things like that. And, um, it was amazing, but I didn't know that it wasn't real and that it wasn't a normal thing that people did or didn't have that experience as a designer. I had a very unusual young period of my career. And I think that what I learned from it was that everything matters and that craft matters the most and ideas generate terrific projects, but don't necessarily result in something terrific unless unless the craft is right. And I'm curious, you know, that must have been such an amazing training ground for any young designer to be working on on these covers. Um, is there any do you do you feel that, you know, you kind of learned how to work with clients in that way because you're dealing with, you know, who could be more particular, but yet also kind of removed from the realities of graphic design than musicians from the 70s, right? I mean, did you learn anything about how to handle clients in this kind of, uh, you know, it's like a trial by fire, I would assume. Well, yes and no, uh, because the client relationship is very different today. I mean, I would be dealing with a recording artist, and the recording artist had total say. So if there would be project managers who would bring them around uh, to meet me, um, and they would sometimes participate in a discussion or the band's management or maybe even their wives would come. But the reality was it was a very limited form of approval making. Um, you would get, uh, you would work directly with a person whose record cover it was. If they liked it, it went. If they didn't like it, you'd redo it. And now it's, it's much vaguer. I work for corporations. There are myriads of people involved. There are all kinds of hierarchies and levels. I have to negotiate my way to the appropriate decision maker. Sometimes they set up hurdles to prevent that. It really depends upon the project. Um, so corporate behavior was very different from those decisions. Then, of course, there weren't marketing executives. They didn't call themselves marketing executives. They were really, most of the people that handled the, the marketing in my early days in the record industry were um, producers of the music or um, somebody who might be the band's manager. Uh, but they were never marketing experts. Nothing was focus group tested. I made things that went out of my desk and went all over the world and often sold, sold millions of copies and are still in existence with really one approval. <laughs> Which is kind of incredible when you really think about it. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah. I don't yeah. even know how that was possible now. And I went, up, I went up to Sony Records after Sony bought CBS. I think after maybe I was out of there about 15 years or 20 years. I can't remember how long. And of course, when I worked at CBS, there wasn't there were no co co computers. We we set typography that was you know done by outside typographers, and it would come back on a sheet of paper, and you'd cut up the type and put it on a mechanical. And there was a mechanical room that did that. And I made those 150 covers a year, and there were about 35 people in the the art department. And I went to Sony, and there were about 100 people in the art department, and they all had computers. And I said. Uh, uh, how many covers do you make a year? And they said, oh, about 150, same amount as me. And we did, but they didn't do librettos for operas and they didn't have open up covers. They were really making CDs. And I thought, what are they doing with all that extra time? And I realized what they were doing. They were making changes. I'm, cu I'm curious, you know, you're known, obviously there's a, an accidental hit was your Boston cover, which is sort of, uh, you know, an illustration, of course, too, because, you know, what for a graphic designer, that is also kind of uh, also makes it a little bit unusual. I'm curious, like what is there one musician you wish you could go you could ring up whether they're alive or dead and kind of work on one more cover with them? Muddy Waters. He was so charming and he was so delighted um, with the things we did did together. And um, I just have such happy memories of working with him. I remember Richard Avedon shot him for one cover 
and he walked into Avedon's office. He was wearing a hat and a coat. And uh, Avedon saw him and just said, stand against that wall. He, took, he pushed him against the wall, took six big photos of the guy, uh, which were, we saw instantaneously, and the record cover was done. I mean, he had so much character. It, he just, he was a natural. And then there were management companies I worked with. I, I really liked um, working with a guy named Steve Paul, who used to have a place called Steve Paul's Happening. And he was a manager of uh, Johnny and Edgar Winter and Rick Derringer and, and uh, young David Johansson before he changed his name. And he, he just required excellence, you know, and he was, he was just wonderful to work with because he trusted me. And I did some beautiful work for him. And then there was Bob James, and I did a series of jazz albums for him that are classics, I think. You know, there were, I think there were 19 in all. They were all big, big objects blown up out of scale. And it, and what the the more I think about it, the album covers are one of those artifacts from graphic design history that are all kind of kept, right, and collected, and where so much work from back then is not kept and collected. Um, and um, I was curious uh, because I, I watched uh, your episode on the the Netflix show on Abstract, and I saw you had this incredible archive where you had you know, really like, you know, lot, seemed like a lot of different pieces where um, I'm curious, where is that archive and, and what is it like? It's not exclusively mine. It's the New York office of pentagrams archive. I have, um, I keep my old record covers there and public theater posters are there and things that we save, you know, if they're actual physical objects, very little is a physical object anymore, but when it is, it's stored in the archive. And then of course there are also uh, files in our archive. Most everything I, I've done is there. And I can go when I have shows now. I go there to to reclaim the work and find out what I made because I forget. Before we return to Paula, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands with in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design. Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. When you're starting your sourcing journey for any project, visit the content library on lumens.com called The Edit. There you might be inspired, especially in March for Women's History Month, on design legends like Greta Grossman, Florence Knoll, and Lily Reich. Today, it's totally key to be aware of the creators behind the objects in your collection. And Lumens is a design-driven destination that ensures you'll always be buying the real thing. Lumens will be celebrating these incredible creators all month. And if I were to choose a particular object to celebrate Women's Month myself, especially inspired by my chat with Paula today, I might choose a piece from Knoll, knowing that Florence Knoll's influence and sense of style remains in effect all over the legendary brand to this day. To find the right work of design for your next project, make sure you visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. And when it, when it comes to type and this sort of power of type and, and we've, you know, people that obviously have read anything about graphic design, any sort of layman, you know, like thinner fonts might mean something more traditional and more elegant or serif versus sans serif. And I'm curious in your, in your experience and from, I would love to hear from your own mouth, why do you think that is, you know, what about the human condition really responds emotionally um, and intellectually to the way in which we arrange letters? Well, largely because we read <laughs> um, and that we recognize and that reading and recognizing are really different. Uh, you read text and uh, some people find serif text easier to read and some people find sans serif text easier to read. It really depends upon the font. But in uh, things that have one or two words that might exist on packaging or they may exist in posters or they may exist in digital media, you get an impression of something. And you get an impression of something in terms of how you recognize the type. 
Like you might recognize type to be, for example, trendy or bold or deliberately ugly or challenging in another kind of way, or you might find it to be graceful. You might find a, a logo to look important or to look stylish. Um, these are these are associations we make from seeing things that are similar that and they are connected to something that help get that font to develop that form of rep recognition and that the way you understand something is a visual language. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean it's it's uh you know I guess I'm thinking like why why the brain kind of attributes certain aspects of a typeface to is it you know it's probably cultural it might be a little bit primal i'm not sure um no i think it's, it has to do with repetition and expectation as i said recognizability is really the goal of what an identity designer does it's easier to understand when you think about marks like if you saw the uh nike symbol when it it first emerged it really did not look like a power symbol or a, a a sports symbol it looked like a really bizarre check mark and then over a period of time in relationship to wyden and kennedy's brilliant promotion and advertising you began to associate it with sport in a, such a profound way that you can't escape seeing that and not understanding it in connection to that product that could just as easily be typography it doesn't have to be just an abstract mark, which that was, which makes it great because it's a language that doesn't need a logo. But that is their logo and that the logo is form. And so that when you see forms like that, you would make an association to Nike. You would think, oh, that looks like sport. But initially it didn't. That's curious. I don't I guess now that I think about it, the swoosh is the only logo I can think of that has its own name. <laughs> the, that would be instantly, everyone knows what the Nike swoosh is, even without describing it in any way or, or looking at it. Well, calling it a swoosh is part of the arrogance of the design and advertising aspect of it, because the fact of the matter is it isn't necessarily motion. It just looks like a check mark. Does it mean swoosh sounds like you're going to, you know, get, get the basket, the, the basketball in the, in the, in the basket. And that, you know, that's the swoosh sound. That's what your expectation is. That's where it comes from. It's from an advertising campaign. That stuff works. <laughs> <laughs> and, and going from the, uh, the, the commercial to the, the sort of uh, the personal, when it comes to your, your hand-painted maps, uh, for those who haven't seen them, I'm wondering if you could describe them, how you would describe them to, to someone who's never heard or seen them before. I paint uh, maps of places that are real, um, and I paint in um, information and the information can be routes and roads, uh, but it's also things like demographics sometimes, or sometimes I may characterize something in a kind of sardonic way. Um, a lot of them are critical. Uh, they really give you a picture of the world, but a picture from my point of view, and they're editorial, they're very editorialized. Mm -hmm. And I call it all the news that's fit, <laughs> that fits. <laughs> it's sort of like they, it, it's sort of, it's sort of my view of how I see things and how I think about the world. How long have you been doing them and, and how many have you done to, to date, you think? Well, I was do, painting um, a sort of fractured, satirical, I, idea-oriented things for a very long time. I started doing that actually at, when I think when around the end of my stay at CBS Records, I was drawing crazy diagrams. I made things like that for my husband's magazine, the Pushpin Graphic. Um, then I started creating them for graphic design relating projects. Like I made a genealogy chart of typefaces uh, for print magazine that was a joke. And these sorts of things were sardonic and some of them were funny and then they started to get serious and um, I began painting them bigger. They used to be on little chipboards and I was painting with temper paint. And then all of a sudden I realized they'd be better big and I started doing great big canvases. And the canvases can, my biggest canvas I think is eight, 10 feet by 14 feet is a painting of the world that's that, at that scale. Mostly they're sort of eight feet high, it could be eight by eight square or a little wider. And uh, your your husband Seymour, of course, is a, a huge part of your life and himself, he had an, has an incredible career. Uh, the two of you don't collaborate or, or work together. But I'm curious if, if 
if there's anything from, you know, when you work, when you live, obviously you share a life with somebody. Is there something that has of him that has seeped into your career over over the decades? Um, well, he taught me about typography. Um, he was a huge influence uh, in the 60s and 70s. He used to draw fonts and he drew some of the most popular ones of the period when I was in art school and, and early in my career. So uh, he was hugely influential in that. Um, but I think now where he seems less interested in typography and, you know, much more of an illustrator, um, I am amazed at his output and how he can continually stay creative and make things. And, you know, that's very much part of our life. So I don't know that I would have been painting if I hadn't been married to him. Um, I think I would be working, but I don't think I would be, I would have been doing the dual thing that I've done for the past 20, 20 years or so. And you have a, a, a you had a recent show in London at Sims Reed Gallery that, that, that was called, you know, Data Isn't Neutral. And I'm wondering if you could explain what that means and how that relates to these maps. Well, I think that people think that data is scientific and that, that if you see something displayed in a statistic, it's accurate. It isn't. Um, people create the data. Look at what just happened in the last election, that the Republican pollsters put out information that was in no way inaccurate. And then people who took took information from those pollsters like 538 just made completely inaccurate, you know, diagrams of how people were going to probably vote. And they're way off, more than I ever remember. And that that you can't, you have to realize that data is selected. People make a decision of how they're going to gather and select the data. And that means that they're not necessarily impartial. It's very hard to be impartial. There's always a, a way to view something in terms of making those decisions. So I decided to be, you know, just outrageous about it. There's nothing impartial about my my data. It's my data. I picked it. I use it. I leave out what I'm not interested in. I totally control the data. What's a good example of like some data that you kind of added to a map that you feel is inherently yours or, you know, in that sense? I think it's more what I leave out. In other words, like I'm, I'm select. I, I, I draw, draw things from information that may or may not be accurate. Like a, you know, uh, state populations change all the time. Uh, how they voted may be counted differently in different precincts. Things aren't necessarily quite in the right spot. Um, I may have a statistic wrong. I don't correct it. Um, there, there. It is a pile of information, and I would say you can get an impression from the maps, and they're sort of right. Are you a Steve Kornacki, MSNBC sort of like election map aficionado? Do you like looking at? <laughs> no, at I actually, stuff? I actually can't stand watching him. If you want to know the truth, <laughs> he makes me he makes me terribly nervous. Oh well, I, I, it's probably his job being done. Um, it is somewhat uh, hypnotic and also nauseating at the same time exactly it's, it's <laughs> no, like, i have that I, I i find myself just getting very nervous and uncomfortable about about the potential of the decisions i mean i think i think it's interesting about the territories though i mean i like how he analyzes an area and how they're going to vote and why they vote that way and but it misses it misses something and it you know like i think that what was incredibly missed in all analysis of the vote in this past election was really the position of women in general and racial relationship to abortion where they had a right taken away and it was absolutely outrageous. And no, sometimes the economy is not more important than that. And the fact that, um, you know, they totally discounted young people who are voting for the first time and good luck Republicans because they're likely to vote Democratic the rest of their lives. So, I mean, I think those are big misses, you know, like that that wasn't in the polling at all. And apparently they thought the the abortion thing was going down and it didn't. And are you someone that watches anything political and think, you know, God, like I should have designed that poster. Maybe this election would have gone just differently if maybe... I don't know. Maybe you know if Hillary had a different thing, or what, or or if a Barack Obama's announcement, or if the Inflation Reduction Act may have been communicated slightly differently with maybe a really great poster. Like, <laughs> no, this, I don't think that actually. <laughs> I don't think they do anything. 
I think people remember them, but I don't think that they necessarily change votes. I think, yeah, I think people, the people uh, who like the message, like the poster. You know, I mean, I, they, the, um, I, I hate to sound so cynical about it, but I, I've, I've seen posters become very popular that I actually don't think are very good. And, uh, and I don't want to mention, I don't want to have to mention them. So don't ask me, but, and then, and then there are posters that weren't popular, that were terrific, that did very little. So, you know, I, as somebody who actually judges the quality of the poster, just separate from how people respond to it, I just don't know that what you do that could be great necessarily will move somebody. Before we return to Paula, a word from our sponsor, Ann Sachs. In the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Ann Sachs. The brand opened its Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile, showcasing modern, timeless design. Today, Ann Sachs collaborates with leading tastemakers to help interior designers and aficionados from around the country to create truly personalized spaces. From Martin Lawrence Ballard to Kelly Wurstler, Ann Sachs translates the talents of these designers into tile that can shape and elevate spaces. Their latest collaboration is with visual artist Lisa Hunt, and available in showrooms in March. Known for her kinetic, expressive, and completely unique aesthetics, often using metallics and hint of abstracted typographic inspiration, Hunt's line of exclusive stoneware tile is called Asha. Handmade in Portland, Oregon, the collection comes in five designs and six color options, and is a true extension of this vibrant American visionary. For more information about the Asha collection by Lisa Hunt for Ann Sachs, or about any of their incredible handmade tiles, visit www.ansax.com. And as we're kind of now celebrating this 50 years of Pentagram, uh, I would love to hear your story about how you first joined the firm and why. And you had your own practice and you had that you shared with someone uh, before Pentagram. And what what had that had that happen? Well. I knew a lot of the principals. Um, Woody Pirtle and I were friends. Uh, we met through the AIGA board and AIGA uh, events. That's the American Institute of Graphic Arts. Colin Forbes, the founder of Pentagram, was uh, president of AIGA when I was on the board. And I was a very young member of the board. I think I was 26 or 27 when I first got on the board. And that was when I was still in the record industry. As a matter of fact, I wanted to leave CBS in the early 80s because records were turning into CDs and I wanted to go out on my own and I was really nervous about how to do it. And Colin actually advised me and gave me some courage then. And I knew I knew also Michael Beirut and I'd also met him through AIGA so that we joined at the same time and um, we had the same connections. But I had to close down a business um, because I had a business called Copel and Share in the um, in this, the 80s. And um, to join Pentagram, I had to close it down. We had hit a recession. And my partner, Terry Copel, was a magazine designer and his work almost totally went away. So he took a staff job and I was running the business by myself. And that I was really happy when Pentagram called, though I was afraid of it because I thought it was going to be too corporate for me. Hmm. Uh, and how would you describe that first day when you walked in the door? Like, what was what was that pentagram office like? Well, it was a lot smaller then. Uh, it's a New York office was really an outpost of London. Um, it had fewer partners. Uh, it was a small uh, space in a building that was actually had a terrible elevator that was always breaking. And now is where Jeff Bezos has an apartment, uh, right? Because it's right across from Madison Square Park, which was actually a terrible neighborhood in the at the period i moved into pentagram um and uh three years later we there was a small building for sale at 204 fifth avenue down the block from that loft building that we bought together um and the partnership owned we sold it about uh right before covid Uh, we had um it it was it was uh, i would say that office was feisty 
and we were we were um, not as famous as the London office. Nobody knew who Pentagram was in New York at that particular point in time, but it had a, a very well-grounded reputation in London. Uh, there were famous partners. Colin was one of them, but he, but he wasn't as famous in the States uh, as he was in London. So they were still building their business, and um, the two major partners, Colin and Peter Harrison, uh, were... Peter was an ex-Brit and Colin was still British and um, they didn't build a New York office until Woody Pirtle joined, but he was from Texas. So when Michael and I joined, it became a New York office and we began doing things that were relatable to New York City. Um, I joined in 1991 and um, I worked on the American Museum of Natural History, the New York Times Sunday Magazine, and the Public Theater all around the same time, uh, the Public Theater being in, in 1994. So Michael was also doing cultural work in New York. He worked on BAM, and then we began to have a New York cultural rep rep reputation, and it grew into um, much more commercial graphic design, and pretty soon we were doing everything. And when you say it was feisty, uh how so what was feisty about it well we were in a, we were upstart you know like we were we were essentially a young company with young partners and it london was much more established they had a broad history when you went to london you saw work from pentagram everywhere now you see it in new york but you didn't you didn't then nobody knew where nobody knew what pentagram was if you were a new yorker and uh we jim bieber who was an architect joined and began building restaurants that people knew and and people began to recognize it and there was synergy in the group and the group grew and the the you know pentagram is known for its organizational structure being very sort of unique and how it's run and how and was that always the case from the very get-go when you were when you first joined and and was that a part of your decision absolutely uh, Pentagram is the large, largest independently uh, owned design firm in the world. There is no other firm like it, though many try. It is a, it's an organization of designers. The principals are, are designers. Every now and then there may be one who's a writer, but for the most part, they're designers. And they um, want control of their work and they want to do their work. And that each partner uh, operates a team, and the team can be any size. It can be any size that they choose to make the work they want to make, and they can work with those clients they want to work with. And the goal is to um, be profitable um, and to be able to do your best work, and that you select the partners based on the work they do. So that you're you're picking the best designers you know to join, and you try to get a reasonable uh, differential in the kind of talent, so the business stays broad. But um, the goal is that if everybody comes to the table, and they have to be say equal, and say equal means that somebody may more make more money than somebody else. Somebody else may have more of an outer reputation. Somebody else may be more of an inside player. Uh, they, you may have different types of clients, but that collectively you're equal. And was that refreshing at the time? I mean, when you joined, was that a big part of you joining Pentagram? Was the structure? Well, I liked the structure. That was that was that was attractive to me. Uh, when I joined, I was the only woman partner in a whole group of, of very male men, particularly the British guys. I mean, I, I used to hate actually international partners meetings. Now I love them. But um, those guys were intimidating. And they weren't all that nice if you want to know the truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did they treat you well? I mean, as the first, uh, you know, as the first female partner, did they treat you in a way that you thought was befitting at the time? No. <laughs> no, I felt like they. I felt like they. They were. They were sort of dismissive. Um, I didn't feel that way so much in the New York office. I felt that way pretty much internationally. Was there a project that you had that you did that kind of you think changed the way they perceived you, or is it just time? Well, it's interesting. The project that they were very critical of and walked out when I showed was my identity for the public theater. <laughs> really? Did they try to persuade you? They to... thought I had committed 
typographic blasphemy. I mean, there was nothing they could do. They could do. I represented it at a partners meeting. We, I remember, still remember where we were sitting. It was some place where I don't think we had a proper screen, and there was sort of a sheet thrown over something, and the work was projected on the sheet. And we were sitting with tables, dining tables, and I think it was maybe a tablecloth that was over this this thing. And uh, I remember that they were very dismissive of the work, and some of them got up and left. Oh gosh! Did they apologize? Did you eventually get an apology from any of them? Never. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad for them. <laughs> Too bad for them. Exactly. They owe you an apology for sure. Um, no, they were they were an arrogant lot. I mean, okay. they were really talented, and I learned a lot from them. But but you know, they were they were very male and very British. And what about that Britishness uh, that you think is maybe even today kind of essentially woven into like the sort of pentagram DNA. Is there, is there kind of a Britishness that is still present? Well, it's the, the, the organization is so much more diverse. Um, I, I, the, the original Britishness, if to, to call it that just as my sense of them being arrogant. Um, I think, I think the arrogance is, is pretty much gone. Do you need even a slightly small bit of arrogance to be a good designer? Well, you have to you have to believe in your own rightness of choices. So I guess that that's true. Um, but I think that the arrogance really had to do with general male behavior anyway. I mean, these guys were, you know, 17 years older than me. Um, they were friends with Seymour and the, the group in the States, some of them were equally arrogant. You know, they thought they were design masters and they were, and they thought their views were uh, what mattered and that other things that, you know, if you did something different, it was blasphemy. I remember Peter Saville was a partner in the London office and he experienced the same thing I experienced because we were more or less the same age. And he was actually a very, very, it still is a very famous, very highly regarded designer. And, and it was not a good experience for him. I remember that totally well. So that had to do with the, just the, the, the nature, I think, of that generation of men. And when it comes to you know, perhaps some recent projects, I'm wondering, you know, firm wide, you know, could be anywhere in, in Pentagram. Um, I was wondering if there's any that you think came out in a way that are truly unique to Pentagram, meaning that they couldn't have really been, you couldn't really see them being executed in another firm in quite the same way. I think that the it's not the specifics of the project it's more the scale of the project. I think that what Pentagram has, because it's multidisciplinary, is this executional ability to do things on a much broader scale. Because it all, you know, it 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 often is um, moving from form of logo to animation of logo to building. You know, like I mean that these things really move, and I really don't think other firms do that as well. Uh, some of our competitors uh, who are very good, like Wolf Olin uh, or uh, uh, Collins, don't really do environmental graphics or, or work with buildings. Uh, so they, they can't have the same relationship we may have with institutions where we do it all. And with a, a lot of people that listen to this podcast in particular are you know, in the world of art or design or the cultural fields, how does Pentagram Yourself, but also the, the firm, how does Pentagram decide on which clients to take on and how that process works? Well, it depends upon how, how slow or, or busy we are. <laughs> I mean, I think that we attract um, the kind of clients that feel that we, we work appropriately in their milieu. And that is both good and a trap. Because it means you get a lot of a lot of the work can be repetitive, you know, that you've done this job 20 million times and you're sick of it and really should go to somebody else who's never done it before. Um, on the other hand, because so many, there are so many of us and we do so many different kinds of work, I know I, I got an opportunity to really grow here. I, I started out, I'd never done anything um, that was three-dimensional. And I had, when I was working on the public theater, the building architect was a man named James Stuart Polshek, who died recently. Um, brilliant architect, and I—he um, saw 
my identity and he was charged with redoing their lobby where there was no budget and he said he decided to make it all graphics and he he sort of handed me an architect's plan and told me to you know design my identity into these series of banners and put them up every place i didn't even know how to read the plan um but i began working and that be then did a couple of other projects with him and because of that i've been doing that as a serious part of my business for the past 25 years with all different kinds of people and it's been fantastic i love that sort of work and i really owe uh that part of my career to him and what part of that kind of work uh, appeals to you you think well they're frustrating parts but it's really the what the creative process enables you to do if you if you sort of figure it out right if you make a book jacket and let's say you design the book jacket and it's going to go to print in six months and the sales department is still looking for copy lines for the back and the front of the book and they're going to put uh, the author's name but maybe there's somebody else's credit or they decide they're going to put a quote on the back the book jacket will come out six months later and look nothing like what you designed because you're not there to control it. If you work on a building and you do, let's say, sort of outer typography for the building and you, you uh, do a whole plan on the inside, you make murals and all kinds of things for the building and you make a Photoshop rendering of it to present to the client and the Photoshop rendering is cost costed, like the cost of it is amortized and you know exactly what it's going to cost and it's within the building's budget. It may be three, four years later, but it comes out exactly like the Photoshop rendering. And that is spectacular. It never fails. I can show it to you on every project I've ever designed. Either it doesn't get made at all because it was too expensive or it's exactly like the Photoshop rendering. If there were uh, some projects now in this sort of 50 years, perhaps outside of your own portfolio that you feel were sort of instrumental in sort of building Pentagram to what it is today, are there a few projects that you think you can point to that are uh, outside of your own that you think are are pillars in a way? Oh, God, I have to have everything in front of me because everything <laughs> flies out of my head. Um, the reality is that Pentagram is strong in probably every possible area of, of business. Uh, we did enormous financial institutions well, and these things last from, uh, you know, I guess uh, Lloyd, Lloyd's of London to City to MasterCard to, you know, uh, the more contemporary digital banks that the partners are doing now. I mean, it's just a broad area of practice that is so much better than what else is out there. Um, then you take, uh, you know, museums and, and, and uh, uh, as a group, and we've done so many, you know, from the V&A to the most contemporary museum that is going on right now, like the National Gallery that, that um, my partner Michael Garricky did, or Abbott's uh, work with the Kennedy Center, which is is breakthrough. I mean, these things these things go on in the movie industry, and my partner Emily Oberman just kills it all the time. So so it's you know her what she does is elevate the expectation of um, what logos are. The way my partner Dom Lippa does the London Design Festival every year, I just think is astounding. It's a 20-year body of work that's amazing. And Harry Pierce did Liberty of London. He understands retail better than anybody I know and brings real art to it so that all of them have something that they do incredibly well. My, my partner Natasha Jen and Eddie O'Para are you know, terrific and equally in fashion and technology. Really amazing. <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, we we talked about your time at CBS Records and the and, you know, at that time in graphic design and how analog things were till today, where so much of design is digitally driven and and guided by all these forces. Um, do you think that all this technology has made graphic design, you know, better? Or do you think if you were uh, you know, a young designer today that you would still be interested in fall in love with graphic design in quite the same way if you were now having to, to be in a purely digital world where everything is just 
Adobe Creative Suite and <laughs> no, everything is an Adobe Creative Suite actually. Um, this is the best period ever for typography there ever was. The uh, designers today, and we do it every five minutes, we customize and redraw typefaces all the time. It's a, a true revolution of it. You create whole bodies of visual languages for individual companies by allowing them to have their own font that you can recognize. This really takes you back to what I was talking about with Nike. You can recognize a letter form and understand a whole company. That's amazing. You couldn't do that. You, I mean, Seymour used to do it. He drew a lot of fonts when he was, when he was working in the 70s. He just couldn't do it so instantaneously. And do you think, is that because now there are new technologies that makes it easier for clients to have their own typeface? Or is it about a backlash it's about against? It's about, it's about designers understanding form and the technology enabling the designer to, to create the form and also to program it. So that you can have you can have a bespoke font and and uh, the type companies to a degree I think enforce this because they found uh, they changed their rules and they 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 didn't they gave up working in partnership with designers. What they do is they charge uh, the clients if you use one of their fonts and you you design with it. The client has to repay a licensing fee every three years for the use of the typography and that that's becomes very expensive because they're you're paying you're paying for something that you may have purchased when you were a small company and then you've grown to become a big company and they they you're you're paying them over and over and over for the use of the font but not for the use of the design and there's something really that there's something really wrong about that um and i think that what's happened is partially there's a love of typography and the software that enables young designers to really create their own fonts and then i think there's actually uh, a little blowback to the way that the type business has begun to run itself and and they're no longer compatriots with the designers they become competitors and enemies and if i as my last question if i asked uh paula share what what is good graphic design how would you answer? Oh, shit. <laughs> it's a hard question. Um, I think that good graphic design raises the expectation of what the design should be. A special thanks to Paula Scher, everyone at Pentagram, and Rachel Judlow for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>